Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best bendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. Tell me where the inspiration to start a podcast came from. Well, I think it came from a couple different places. Recently, I was reflecting on the process of writing my book last year. And I was missing that process of interviewing a bunch of people for the book. That was my favorite part of writing the book, just being able to talk to other people out in the world who are very interested in hypermobility syndromes and sharing their experiences with me. And it was just really a wonderful experience. And I missed that. And so I was trying to think, okay, what's another way I could keep interviewing people about hypermobility without writing a book? And the answer is a podcast. So that's why I I've originally got the idea. And there are a whole lot of people out there living with hypermobility syndromes who I think are hungry for information, for insights, for connection, and hearing their experiences reflected back to them, feeling less alone, and you know, hopefully gathering up some tips and tricks to help them live better lives with these conditions. So I hope to be able to provide some of that through the podcast. The podcast is called Zebra Talks because the zebra has become a mascot of sorts for people with hypermobility syndromes. Can you tell us the story of why the zebra is the mascot? Like, how did this come about? Yeah. So as far as I understand it, there's a saying that medical professionals are trained with, hey, if you hear hoofbeats behind you, don't turn around and expect to see a zebra. In other words, When someone is sharing their symptoms with you, it's probably nothing out of the ordinary. It's probably just a horse. So go with the simplest explanation, go with the simpler diagnosis, et cetera. And unfortunately, medical doctors have been taught and in most cases are still taught that hypermobility syndrome, such as hypermobility spectrum disorder and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome are rare conditions. Now we're learning that they are not rare conditions after all. And so the idea of the zebra being um, an awareness raising image, a mascot of sorts is to say, hey, sometimes when you hear hoofbeats behind you, it really is a zebra. And we need to start seeing these zebras, i.e. people with what we previously thought were rare conditions and haven't been well identified, well diagnosed, and certainly not well treated by the medical community. And we need to do better. So I really like the image of the zebra. It's recognizable and I believe in advocacy. So hopefully it serves that purpose. So you said that new information is coming out that these hypermobility syndromes are not as rare as we once thought they were. What is the current understanding of prevalence of these syndromes in the general population? What do we know now about prevalence that we didn't know, say, 10 years ago? First of all, I think prevalence is really, really hard to pin down. It's thought that uh, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is, of course, one of 13 types of EDS subtypes, and it happens to be by far the most common type, but it's not well diagnosed. There's a sister condition that we call hypermobility spectrum disorder, which is essentially symptomatic hypermobility, 
that doesn't meet the current diagnostic criteria for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So many people that work with patients with these conditions lump together hypermobile EDS with hypermobility spectrum disorder as clinically the same thing, even though they have different diagnostic criteria at the moment. So having said that, you know, these are two conditions that are often lumped together. And there was a 2019 study done in Wales, a population study that looked at the diagnosed prevalence of these conditions as a group. So they looked at all the people who were diagnosed with either hypermobile EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorder. They did not separate those out for the study. So those two things together diagnosed in the population of whales was one in 500. And that is nowhere near what would be considered a rare condition. So it's a little tricky to interpret that because again, they were looking at two different conditions, both of which are understood to be poorly diagnosed and they were looking at the diagnosed prevalence. So when I see that data, I think, wow, one in 500 already puts us well outside the realm of a rare condition, but it's likely that that prevalence is far greater in that population because we are not counting all the people that are undiagnosed but living with the symptoms of these conditions. Tell me a little bit about your own story. And let's start with your earliest memory that you can think of that you now look back on and can say, ah, now I understand that experience. The earliest thing I remember was being in elementary school, probably you know, third or fourth grade, and we were practicing for our school musical performance, you know, presentation to families. And we were in the little bleachers in the gym and I felt really unwell, which I often did as a kid, especially if I had to stand up for any period of time. And so here I was standing on the bleachers and I passed out, <laughs> just totally passed out. There was nothing quote unquote wrong with me. I wasn't sick, but Looking back on that, it's like, gee, that wasn't normal. You know, an elementary kid just passing out on the bleachers. That's kind of weird. No one ever did much about it. I went on with things and was generally fine. I mean, I don't think I went on with that rehearsal right then, but it's consistent with my feeling unwell that with having to stand up for any period of time. As a kid, anytime I'd go shopping with my mom, grocery shopping, clothes shopping with my big sister, I would just have to lean on stuff. I'd be constantly asking, when can we go home? I just don't feel well, I need to sit down. And so certainly these were early signs of dysautonomia. You know, I had a little kid version of POTS most likely. How long did it take you to receive a diagnosis from the point in time where you looked at your life and you're like, something is going on and I need help figuring out what it is? It's hmm, a tough question to answer because when I look back, you know, there was this early experience of dysautonomia, but then I really didn't start having musculoskeletal challenges, issues until like puberty, like teenage years, I was a competitive tennis player and I had chronic shoulder subluxations and I spent a lot of time in physical therapy for my shoulders. And, you know, once again, I didn't really think much of the fact that I was the only one on the high school tennis team constantly in PT, that everyone else seemed to be able to swing the racket and their shoulders weren't falling apart. But that's really when the musculoskeletal stuff started. 
And then in my 20s, I developed all kinds of pain, like knee pain, foot pain, hip pain, SI joint pain, neck pain, really horrible muscle spasms in my upper back. And I was always going to different doctors and chiropractors, so many different people to try to get some relief and try to figure out what's going on. I remember having MRIs of my knees because they just hurt, but no one could really identify why they hurt. And of course, the MRI was normal, things like that. But at that point, I wasn't connecting my musculoskeletal issues with significant anxiety that I was experiencing in my 20s, just really kind of paralyzing anxiety. So then it was really after the birth of my two children that things really hit the fan. And I developed chronic fatigue and widespread myofascial pain that was more debilitating, more severe mental health challenges. And at the same time, I had been learning about hypermobility syndromes. And that's when I started to put together that, oh my gosh, I might actually have a thing that's related to this bendiness. Of course, all growing up, people were recognizing that I had hypermobility. All those years I spent in PT for my shoulders, they saw that I was hypermobile. There just wasn't much else to say about it. So my youngest child is six. And so after she was born, that's when my real medical odyssey in earnest began. I thought, okay, I'm gonna go to my doctor. I'm gonna go see the specialists. And unfortunately I had really what is the similar experience to so many people living with HSD and HEDS, which is I got a lot of dismissiveness. I got a lot of gaslighting. Nobody was offering me anything. Everyone thought I just looked way too healthy. I was way too high functioning to have anything actually wrong with me. You know, the cardiologist I saw because I was having really severe POTS symptoms at that point, he never even mentioned POTS. And at that time I had never heard of it myself, but I had a classic case, a classic set of symptoms of POTS. And he just told me at the end of his exam, he said, you know, there's just almost no chance that there is anything wrong with you. And I remember just telling him, I said, you've got to be kidding me. I, I can't walk up my stairs. My heart palpitations are constant. They're all day, they're every day. You know, this incredible brain fog, all of this stuff, I can't live with this. And you're telling me this is normal? And he said, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> so it was really disheartening and so discouraging. And luckily I eventually was referred to the geneticist in my town who diagnosed me with hypermobile EDS at age 43, after a lifetime of a wide array of symptoms that all fit under this umbrella of having hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I was diagnosed at age 43. What impact did having a diagnosis make on your life? It was really huge. It was so surprisingly affirming and validating that my whole experience of living in this life and wondering why is my body not quite like my peers? Why do they seem to be able to do, I don't know, more things with less fatigue? They're just more robust. They don't have to be so careful about what they eat all the time. You know, I'm different. And I spent a lot of years wondering if my experience was different or if it's just normal to feel this way as a human being. And so when I finally got this diagnosis, I realized, no, it's not normal to feel this way. This isn't a typical human body experience. This is a unique experience. And it just helped me rewrite the story of my entire life. 
and develop a lot of, uh, I would say, compassion for, you know, all the earlier versions of myself that were working so hard to keep up and to do what it seemed like humans were supposed to be able to do at great expense to my health. I'd say I'm still sort of rewriting or re-understanding, reinterpreting a lot of my life's experiences with this lens now that I have. And it really lit a fire under me to try to do what I can in my sphere of influence to help support other people who are living very similar experiences that I have been. One of the reasons that diagnosis is so challenging is that hypermobility spectrum disorders and hypermobile EDS have symptoms that show up differently in different people. So let's talk a little bit about the basics of the Bendy trifecta, the categories of symptoms that create the hypermobile experience. Yeah, you're right that there is such a wide variety of how these conditions can present. I like to think of the spectrum as a spectrum of variety rather than a spectrum of severity. So very commonly, someone with HSD or HEDS will have multi-system involvement. So they are likely to have some musculoskeletal issues, whether it's joint dislocations, subluxations, or just joint pain or myofascial pain widespread. They're also really likely to have dysautonomia. And the most common form of dysautonomia that bendy people tend to have is POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is where your heart rate elevates a lot more than normal when you stand up and are upright for some length of time. Dysautonomia can carry with it symptoms that look like a panic attack. And a lot of people with POTS report to me that for so many years, their doctor kind of wrote it off as, quote, just anxiety when they were experiencing POTS. And anxiety is also one of the top co-occurring conditions with hypermobility syndromes. The other one being mast cell activation syndrome or some level of histamine issue where that will impact often GI function and exercise tolerance and exercise recovery and you know, people being itchy and rashy. So there is a trifecta that sometimes gets talked about, which is the bendiness, the musculoskeletal stuff, the dysautonomia and the mast cell issues. And that trifecta, we could say shorthand, bendy, dizzy, and itchy, bendy, dizzy, and itchy. There are a whole lot of other things that might show up too, like headaches and chronic migraines, um, tethered cord, Chiari malformation, all kinds of uh, really specific contributors to headaches and different neurological stuff, as well as chronic fatigue syndrome. Gastrointestinal issues are up there as among some of the most common things as well. Both POTS and mast cell issues can contribute to that, but other things can too. So a lot of bendy people tend to have IBS, or leaky gut food sensitivities. And one of the most common things also being delayed gastric emptying, where food just doesn't move through the system as fast as it should. And we do know from some research that bendy people tend to have lower vagal tone. So some of this may be related to the vagus nerve not doing as robust a job at innervating and directing our digestive tract basically to do its job. 
So how should we think of hypermobile spectrum disorders, hypermobility syndromes, as far as are they curable? Are they genetic? Are they a chronic illness? What do we understand about them and how to manage them at this point in time? I think it largely depends on who you ask. How do we conceptualize this category of conditions? It's a good question. For many people with these conditions, they appear quite healthy, but they have limitations in their mobility and their capacity and all, all these different things we just talked about. And so there are a lot of people who really want to raise awareness about this idea of both dynamic disability and invisible disability. So a lot of people are absolutely you know, impacted to such a degree by these conditions that their participation in life in a variety of domains of life are severely impacted. So that's disability. It's the social model of disability. But it's invisible, you know, You're, it's not, they're not wearing a sign that really indicates to people why they need to be using a cane. And it may be I need a cane today, but I don't need one tomorrow. And there's that dynamic quality of it where symptoms are sometimes more severe than at other times. And you also asked, is this curable? Not currently. Treatment options are limited at this point. They're more around lifestyle management. How can we manage the symptoms? and optimize our functioning, given that we have this unique physiology and unique nervous system? How can we optimize daily life? There certainly is a role to play for medical management too, especially when we get into some of those digestive and immune system dysfunctions. There's some medications and, and certainly for pain management as well. But I think about this as a management issue. We have to learn about our own condition and experiment with a lot of the different treatment approaches that are out there and find the recipe of self-care that works the best for us. And it's so person specific. It's really hard to paint a big, broad brushstroke and say, all bendy people need to do X, Y, and Z. We really have to study our response to the different approaches that are available and find out what works for us. And that's really what this podcast is gonna be about, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, hopefully we can share on this podcast experiences. People can share, well, what's worked for them or what seems to be helpful for the people they work with who are learning to thrive with hypermobility syndromes. That's what I'm hoping to share. Absolutely. Tips, insights, tricks, approaches that maybe people haven't explored yet and might be interested in trying out. And did you have a particular listener profile in mind as you were creating this, or perhaps a few different listener profiles? Who is this for? This is for bendy people, primarily. People who are either diagnosed with a hypermobility syndrome or perhaps suspect they might have one. Because again, most of the people impacted by these conditions are not diagnosed currently. So definitely the information is for that population, but it's also directed towards practitioners across a wide variety of fields who find themselves treating patients with hypermobility syndromes and <clears throat> dealing with the lack of resources and training that they've been exposed to, to help their patients and they want to help. So it's for both of those audiences, I would say. And you yourself are a doctor of physical therapy. Tell me a little bit about your background in movement science, physical therapy, and how you got to the point where you now pretty much specialize in hypermobility syndromes. Well, I became a yoga teacher 
in 2004. And despite experiencing many, many years of pain and minor injuries and strains and sprains that were directly related to my yoga practice. There was something about yoga that really drew me in. And I think it was the the movement, my need for movement, my need to be physical and my need to become more integrated and kind of gather my awareness and all the the benefits that yoga can give. Unfortunately, I was practicing asana in a way that wasn't exactly supportive of my bendy body. So that was getting me into trouble. But I started teaching yoga, still dealing with my own chronic pain and aches and injuries and stuff. I got really fascinated by the body and wanted to learn a lot more. So that led me to go into physical therapy school. So I really went into PT school, wanting to be able to understand my yoga students better, but also wanting to be able to understand my own body a lot better. And unfortunately, we learned so little about hypermobility syndromes in PT school that it didn't even at that point get on my radar that I might have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There was just, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I remember learning a little bit about it, but I would have never connected the dots to say, ah, that sounds like my life. I eventually started my own private practice where I was specializing in treating yoga practitioners. So having been a long time yoga teacher and a long time teacher trainer at that point, I was attracting mostly yoga type people into my private practice. And I was starting to see that they were all hypermobile. And that was one of the things that started to get this whole thing on my radar in a bigger way is that not only were they bendy, but they also had all these other multi-system complaints that would come up in our conversation, the GI issues, the mental health issues, the sleep, fatigue, all the different things. And so I just started connecting those dots and thinking, gosh, seems like everybody that comes through my PT practice is just like me. They have all the same issues. How interesting. So that's part of what really helped me personally was what was happening professionally. And you mentioned earlier that you didn't get a lot of training in PT school about hypermobility syndromes and that it's not widely known. So where did you go at that point? How did you learn what you now know about hypermobility syndromes? It's a great question. (laughs) It happened so little by little over time, I think. And it was in the context, again, of having my awareness pointed to the bendiness in my yoga clients, basically. And at the same time, I was getting really interested in chronic pain, just as an area of study as a PT, because I was treating primarily chronic pain. It turns out chronic pain population, big overlap with the hypermobility population. So it was through my studies in chronic pain that I started to teach on chronic pain to yoga teachers. And then I started to partner with a couple other people, a couple colleagues in town uh, teaching about chronic pain. And one of them happened to have EDS, happens to have EDS. And so learning from him about this crossover between chronic pain and what we were talking about with the nervous system and sensitization and all of this, and learning from him about hypermobility syndromes and his hypermobile EDS, I remember thinking, oh my, this sounds like I could possibly be this person. Like, I think I have all of this. And it just didn't occur to me that I was a chronic pain patient. I was teaching about it, but we just get used to our own experience. Weirdly, it took me a minute to realize I am who I'm talking about here. And this colleague with EDS 
was so helpful in reflecting back to me, his experience, helping me realize, oh, and I'm also this person too. Really kind of bizarre, you know, it just all lined up. The stars just sort of were in alignment for me to get hit over the head with this huge aha moment. And then to circle back around to your book, Yoga for Bendy People, I can only imagine that after these years of study and exploration and teaching, that you then were able to take everything that you've learned and sort of integrate it and systematize it as you were writing this book. Yeah, it was a really great process for that. Going through the book writing process helped me formulate a lot of ideas about hypermobility syndromes. And certainly I'm, I wrote the book for yoga practitioners and yoga teachers, but it really led me into a, a much broader desire to serve this much bigger population, you know, even far outside of the realm of yoga. But I felt compelled to write the book because as a longtime yoga teacher trainer, I found that that was exactly the population that needed to have a good understanding about hypermobility because Many of the yoga teachers out there that I've worked with and trained, they're hypermobile and many of their students are. And I just noticed there was this huge lack of awareness about it in the yoga community that I hoped to fill some of those gaps with the book. And now this podcast is a continuation of that project. So who knows where it's going to lead from here, but it's incredibly exciting. Do you have any intentions for this podcast? My main hope for the podcast is to give other people hope, connecting with other people who are also treating hypermobility syndromes and living with hypermobility syndromes, that it has made me feel so much less alone. My experience for so long made me feel different from all my peers, but it turns out there are a whole lot of people who have had the similar experience. So that's really a big part of my hope is that people see they aren't alone they may have had all kinds of trouble finding anyone who understands their experience, medical providers who have anything to offer them, but at least hopefully they can connect with other stories and hear themselves reflected in those stories and feel a little less alone and learn some tips and tricks and approaches that might really support them living their best bendy life. That's really what I hope that someone gets out of this podcast. I love that. That's a beautiful intention. And I am looking forward to listening to the first episode. Thanks. Me too.